this morning. Here now, this uh, join me if you would in this prayer of illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture text this morning is Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, and uh, I am starting a new series here on Romans called Living Sacrifices, Living for Christ in the 21st Century, and I'm preaching on Romans, and I'm doing that backwards. (laughs) So we're going to start at Romans 16, oddly enough, in this, and if you're wondering why I'm doing that, you might get some idea this morning, but in the church newsletter, which will be coming out soon, I write about that in my in my column in that. If you're not getting our communications, if you're with us, you want to know a little bit more, just contact the office here, email the office, and you can find that on our website, um, and we'll get you on that list, uh, but you'll, you'll find out why I'm uh, preaching backwards. Some of you might think I always preach backwards, but you know, that's a, that's a different story. All right, let's give this Romans 1, uh, 16, 1 through 16 a try here. Hear now the word of the Lord. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Cancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require of you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relatives, Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can put up that slide for me this morning. You know what that is? That's a 1978 Topps baseball card team picture of the New York Yankees. You like that, punter? I put that up there for you. Remember that pain of that year? Do you remember that? Bucky Dent, you remember that? 14 games behind the Red Sox. Bucky Dent hits a home run and a one-game playoff, and the Yankees go and win the World Series. There they are. I can name that whole team. 
Thurman Munson at catcher, Chris Chambliss at first base, Willie Randolph at second, Bucky Dent at shortstop, Greg Nettles at third base, Lupinella at left, Mickey Rivers in center, Reggie Jackson in right field, Ron Guidry on the mound, and Goose and Sparky Lyle in the bullpen. This is, yeah, thank you. <laughs> this is what I was doing in school, you know, when I should have been <laughs> the wasted space of my brain. They were an interesting uh, team. They uh, were known as the Bronx Zoo. They were a cast of characters for sure. You can take that down now. Thank you. <laughs> as we begin this uh, series on Romans, we start with what at first glance seems like, you know, just this jumble of names, a kind of roster of sorts. And you can look at texts like these in the Bible, you can come across them and they seem like rather boring. They're, these, they're kind of like the Old Testament genealogies, right? You get them and we all know we kind of skip through them or read them quickly. What do they mean? A lot of hard to pronounce names in them. I mean, is there anything really significant to be found here? Isn't this just like someone signing off a letter? Well, my answer is yes. Yes, there's tremendous uh, significance here. There's a lot that we can learn here from this. A lot that we can learn about the first century church in Rome, the churches, I should say, in Rome. But also a lot that we can learn and apply now in the 21st century here in Rochester, New York. So let's take a look at this team picture together this morning. And I want to make uh, two observations and then uh, an application from that. So two observations and some applications. I handed out an outline uh, this morning. It's going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy than I usually do, but there's a lot here I want you to see. We're going to unpack it. If the outline is helpful, use it. If it's not, don't just ignore it. The names aren't as important as the ideas, but I gave that to you to help because I think it frames well uh, the kind of the, the content of this and puts it in a way that we can summarize and use it well. All right, so two observations, some applications. Let's start with observation number one. If you look at these names, the first observation you will make is that this was a diverse team, a diverse team. And there are three ways this team shows its diversity. First of all, it had gender diversity. Gender diversity was part of this team. There are 27 individuals named between Romans 16.1 and 16.16. We can assume all of them are important enough to be named by Paul on this precious uh, uh, paper he was using, if you will. They are named there. Ten are women, and 20, uh, sorry, 10 are women, and 17 are men. And so what this team picture shows us is men and women working together, playing prominent roles in the church. And I'll talk a little bit more about what those roles were in my second observation. But for now, just take a moment and consider one of these players on this team. Her name is Phoebe. Phoebe is an amazing person. Name your daughters Phoebe. I messed up. Katie, I'm sorry. I should have named you Phoebe. I love you. My daughter's here. I'm so happy. So, <laughs> Phoebe's pretty amazing. Listen again to what Paul says about Phoebe in the first two verses. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Kenkria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. 
for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. What does that commendation tell us about Phoebe? It's easy to kind of just pass over that. Well, it suggests to us, and I think there's really almost universal agreement about this, that Paul chose Phoebe as his emissary. Think about that for a moment. Of all the people Paul could choose, he chose Phoebe to be his emissary to carry his letter to these house churches in Rome. He chose Phoebe. And he didn't choose her because she was like a FedEx truck, right? This wasn't merely someone to carry a letter. Her role was bigger than that. But think about that for a moment. The holy, inspired Word of God was in this woman's pocket, so to speak. She carried that at Paul's charge to Rome. And given what we know about ancient practice regarding letters like this, it is very likely that Phoebe also read that, at least in one of those churches in Rome, that she was Paul's stand-in, his spokesperson to the churches. That she read that with interpretation, with all the hard things that are in this letter, some of which we will see. He trusted her. I guard the reading of the Word very carefully as a pastor because I want to read it because the first level of interpretation is reading it. You don't hand this over to just anybody. And Paul didn't do that either. He handed it over to someone he trusted. As Scott McKnight puts it, writers like Paul didn't hand letters over to schmucks to stumble their way through the letters. Paul entrusted the most important letter we could argue that he wrote to some of the most important churches in the most important city, to Phoebe. He did that. And he didn't merely send her. He sent her with his full weight of commendation. Do whatever she needs. Treat her as you would treat me. He put all of his weight behind her. He commended her to them. Paul is often wrongly maligned as being a misogynist. No misogynist would do what Paul did with Phoebe, period, end of sentence. So when you look at that team picture in Romans 16, what you are seeing is men and women working together. You are seeing a team with gender diversity, biblical gender diversity. The second way this team was diverse was with regard to its racial and ethnic makeup. We have ethnic and racial diversity on this team. First of all, it's very clear we had Jews and Gentiles on the team, right? And that was really the category of breaking up the world as far as the biblical point of view. There were Jews and then there were Gentiles, and they're both here. Paul notes the Jews in the text. He calls them his relatives. You will catch that, his kinsmen. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives. They weren't his relatives, they were his relatives, right? They were his kinsmen, his Jewish friends. Verse 11, again, greet my relative Herodion. There were Jews there. But most of the names you'll find in that list were Gentiles. And they were mostly immigrants to Rome. They were non-natives of Rome. Some even came from Asia. Verse 5, greet my beloved Epinatus who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. 
Peter Lamp notes that 14 of the 26 people listed in Romans 3 through 16 were not born in Rome. So when you look at this picture, you not only see gender diversity, you see ethnic racial diversity. It was a diverse team. The third form of diversity you see is socioeconomic diversity. Socioeconomic diversity. Roman society, we know, was very segmented, very stratified. There were stations in life, they were like a caste system, and you were to stay in your zone, right? You were in these different places. And when you see this team picture of Romans 16, what you see is people all over the map in that social stratification. You see everyone from slaves to freed people, freedmen, all the way over to wealthy people. We know that many of these people were slaves. It's likely that two-thirds had some form of slave origin. Some of them had earned their freedom from slavery, but they had some type of origin there. So we had slaves among these people, but we also had wealthy people, extremely wealthy people. Phoebe was wealthy. That's one of the reasons Paul chose her, because she had the means and the ability to pay for travel, to get there, the prestige, to get things done. She was a benefactor, Paul says. Prisca and Aquila, we know that they were well-to-do. We know it because it says they had a church in their home. They opened their home. They had a big enough place, right, to have people in their home. So we have everything from slaves to wealthy patrons in this church. When you look at the team picture of Romans 16, what you see is socioeconomic diversity. So clearly, without a doubt, observation number one is that this was a diverse team. The second observation I can make about this team is it was a dedicated team. Not only diverse, but dedicated. A dedicated team. They were dedicated about serving Christ in a variety of ways in his church. And what I gave you on the outline, the main part of it is that little chart. It comes from a guy named Christopher Hudson. He's a professor at Pepperdine University. This came from an article that he wrote. I think it's great at summarizing it, it's giving you a graphic picture of what was going on. And it's as simple as this. I'm going to give you six functions. There were six things these people were doing, six main jobs, titles that are given by Paul here. And then we'll look at the various people, the men and women who were populating those positions. So what were these people dedicated to do? What were they doing? How did they show forth their dedication? Well, six functions. The first one is deacon. You already heard me talk about a deacon here. It's Phoebe, of course. She's the one who fills this role exclusively in this text. It's Phoebe. She's a deacon of the church at Kenkrea. The word there is diakonos. Now, here's when you get these biblical words. It has a wide semantic range. I never try to overclaim what I can't prove with certainty in the Scriptures. A deacon in the church, a diakonos, could be serving tables. They could be caring for the poor, the physical needs of people. They could also be teaching and serving the gospel. Paul calls himself a diakonos of the gospel, a servant of the gospel, a formal teaching ministry. I can't be sure exactly what role Phoebe had, but I can be sure she had a formal role, an important role, an official role, that she was a ministry provider, and Paul was commending her as such to the church deacon. She was dedicated to the church, Phoebe. 
The second function here is the one of patron or patroness, or as the New Revised Standard Version has it, benefactor. Paul calls Phoebe a benefactor. Again, she is the sole person who populates that office, that title, benefactor. Now, what does that mean? You could probably guess. She gave money. She gave money. She used her wealth and also her social status to advance the cause of the gospel, to advance the cause of the church, to help Paul. And Paul knew it, and he thanked her for it. She's helped me. She's helped many of people. She has provided social prestige, financial support to support the church. And many women did this in this time. And one of the things that's fascinating is you can go and find the historic inscriptions on even synagogues at the time where there were female benefactors who gave to the synagogue. They were considered ladies and mothers of the synagogue. Those who used their wealth to help the church. Phoebe was important in that way. She was not only a deacon, she was a benefactor, a patron. Number three, co-worker. Some of these people were dedicated as co-workers, and the word there is sunergos. And what it is is two words together. Works with. Ergo is work. Ergos is work. Soon together. Works with. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila who work with me. Co-workers. Timothy is described this way by Paul. The two women in Philippi are described this way. Euodia and Syntyche. Prisca and Aquila, which is, you might know her as Priscilla. We're talking about the same people here. They were a mission team. They worked together sharing the gospel and ministering. And you know what Paul says about them there? He says, who risked their necks for my life. These were dedicated people. They were putting their necks on the line for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have Aquila doing that. We have Prisca doing that. We also have Urbanus in verse 9 of chapter 16. He's also described in these terms, co-workers, deacons, patrons, co-workers. Fourthly, host of a house church. Host of a house church. Houses form the nucleus of the church. They did not have buildings like we do. In early church, they met in homes, and they met in the homes of mostly wealthy people who donated and gave their homes. We hear about this in Colossians 4.15 with Nympha. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. In our text, it's Aquila and Prisca who are giving their house. There might be Aristobulus and Narcissus. There's some question about what exactly was going on there with their households. The people gave their houses to be churches. That's dedication. Fifthly, we have laborer. Laborer, another way they were dedicated as, as laborers, someone who engages in evangelism, the proclamation of the word. First Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And the people who are doing that in the church here were the following. Maria, verse 6, worked very hard among you. Tryphena worked Workers, and I should say together, Tryphena and Tryphosa were workers in the Lord. And Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord, Paul says in verse 12. These were people laboring for the gospel of Jesus Christ and worthy of honor for it. And so Paul greets them. They were dedicated. 
And finally this morning, number six, and this is perhaps the most controversial part of this, where the most ink has been spilled and the most argument has been had, and that is apostle. One of the titles here is apostle. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who are in prison with me. Now listen carefully what Paul says here in his translation of the NRSV. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So we're talking about Andronicus and Junia here. Let me give you a little bit what's going on here. For a long time, many translations translated the name Junia as Junius, translated it as a male name. And part of that was because of a conception around, uh, well, could this be a woman who's given this label of apostle? And there was uh, issues around that translation. Almost everyone today, regardless of what your views are, whether you're an egalitarian or complementarian or whatever, almost everyone will agree that Junia is a female name. The evidence is overwhelming as far as the extant literature of the day. There's almost no attestation that this name, Junius, existed at the time. As Christopher Hudson notes in his article, in other words, to insist that Junia was a man is to insist on a boy named Sue. That's how strong it is. Almost everyone acknowledges that, but the issue is, okay, what does it mean? Among the apostles, they were prominent among the apostles. Does that mean they had a good rep among the apostles? That, hey, the apostles knew about them, thought they were great? Or does it mean they were among the apostles in the sense of they were apostles? Again, I won't overclaim, I can't be certain, but the ancient witness certainly seems to indicate, as well as some grammatical arguments, that they shared the title apostle. Not that they were among the 12, but perhaps they were among the 72 that were sent out. This is what Origen, a church father, said. He thought that they were among the 72 sent out in Luke 10, that they were those type of apostles given a message about Jesus, having seen the risen Christ. Chrysostom wrote this, Oh, how great the devotion of this woman, speaking about Junia specifically, that she should even be counted worthy of the appellation of apostle. Chrysostom was kind of amazed what Paul said here. caught him off guard. He wasn't expecting that. And Frank Thielman, in his New Testament commentary on Romans, talks about that. It's like, you know, he wouldn't have been surprised if they just had a good reputation among the apostles. He was surprised because the understanding was she was an apostle. And know what Paul says about them here. And they were in Christ before I was. Think about that. They were converts before Paul. They were in Christ before him. Perhaps they were among the 500. They would have to have seen the risen Christ to have that title of apostle. We could argue about exactly what these people were doing. But they were doing something important. Something so important in the church that they got put in prison for it. Paul says, who were in prison with me. Look, this was the time when if you stole something, they'd cut off your hand. This was a time that you would get lashes, right? People didn't go to prison. They didn't have incarceration centers. They didn't have a theory of rehabilitation. Prison was reserved for very few in this type of historical period. And it certainly was true that almost for women, they almost never ended up there. Junia was in prison. 
Now, what can you do that's so bad that gets you to put in prison? They must have been doing something that was threatening some power structure to be put in prison. They did that because they were dedicated people, dedicated to the gospel. So there you have it. That's what these dedicated people were doing. That's what this team roster shows. Look at what these people, these ordinary people, were doing for Jesus Christ. And you can summarize it there at the end. There were a total of six functions on your outline there if you're using it. Three of those, perhaps five of those uh, men were, you know, we have three or five men filling three of the six functions. We have seven women in total here filling all six functions that are labeled here, all the jobs. Now again, I don't overclaim, okay? I don't. But this is what the Bible says. All right, I'm not making this up. I'm not giving you a trick. These are what this is that you can read it yourself. I just think we should give passages like this some weight. When we think about other things that Paul said about women in ministry in the church, we need to give Romans 16 its due when Paul says here and how those things jive together. And perhaps it is possible that maybe those other passages are the exception, and this is the rule. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Think about what Paul says about Rufus' mother. What does he say? She was a mother to me also. Think about what Paul did with Phoebe and all that he did for her. Or sorry, her, she did for him. I want you to think about that. And can you imagine Paul going to Phoebe or going to Rufus's mother and saying, you know, uh, stand over there. Thanks for helping out. Can you imagine that? I have spiritual mothers in this church. There are women in this church who take care of me, who look out for me. I really mean that. They're spiritual mothers. I could say what, what Paul said about Rufus's mother. You've been a mother to me. I'm not going to tell them, yeah, you can stand to the side now. This is a picture of a team dedicated, working together. I respect other viewpoints on these things. I really do, because I held them myself. I should know that. I don't want to overclaim that this all of a sudden proves everything. But it needs to be considered. The bottom line is when we look at this picture of this team, this team picture, we see men, we see women, we see slaves, we see free, we see wealthy, we see poor, we see Jew, we see Gentile, we see immigrant and Roman citizen coming together, working together as a team for a common cause for Jesus Christ. That's the team picture of Romans 16, and it's glorious. And so what does that mean for us today? Let me give you the application this morning. If you think about it, why did Paul waste so much ink on this? And this really is unparalleled in Paul's writings. There are places where he greets people, but nothing like what he does here. How much real estate he gives to what is seemingly like a bunch of names that are pointless and meaningless to us today. Why did he do that? What was his purpose in doing that? And this is one of the reasons I want to preach Romans backwards, because I think you got to start here. Why did he do that? And I'll tell you why he did it, at least what I think why he did it, many scholars agree with this, is that there was a problem in this church, a basic core problem. 
And it's the problem that happens when you get any group of diverse people together. They have different ideas. They have different viewpoints. And what inevitably happens when you try to bring a diverse group of people together is you have quarreling and you have fighting and you have disagreements, you have kerfuffles. People get their feathers ruffled about whatever. Thankfully, that never happens anymore in the church. That's why you want to read it backwards. Paul does this, I think, because he's trying to show them. You need each other. Look at what all these people are doing. I don't know, maybe Rufus's mother was a jerk. I don't know. She was Paul's mother. You see what he's trying to say? He's trying to show them. He's trying to emphasize this unity. And as we will see as we preach through it, you will see all the problems these people are having in living together. But Paul's trying to show them here how important it is, how important they are how they need to focus together, dedicate them to Christ, that their diversity can be a strength. He's calling them to unity. Boy, is that a message we need to hear. We need to hear it, for we're diverse. There are Republicans and there are Democrats here. There are people whose preferred news sources, CNN, and there are those who watch Fox News. There are those among us who are traditionalists. There are those among us who are affirming There are those who want to emphasize our confessional background more and more, and there are more who think we need to do much more on social justice. There are Dutch people here, and there are non-Dutch people here, the Jews and Gentiles of our church. There are those here because they love the CRCNA. They were born and bred in it, and they love it. But there are people here because they want a community church to worship with other people. There are complementarians here, and there are egalitarians here. And sometimes that's not easy to be all one big happy family with all those diverse things going on. It's hard to stay together. We know that saying, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story, right? It ain't easy. And it wasn't any easier in the first century. It actually was harder. I mean, I know why Paul sent Phoebe to this church, because he didn't want to go himself. <laughs> there were a bunch of you know, <laughs> But Paul is calling them to unity. And that's what Christ is calling you to do. Even with the people who rub you the wrong way, the people you might not like what they think, Jesus is calling you to find a way to work together. And the common cause, the common denominator, the focus, the thing that brings unity is the dedication to Jesus Christ. That you can look to somebody and say, I may not disagree with that person, but they love Jesus. They're working for the church. They're working to see his name glorified. Paul wants us to find our unity in Christ and to remind us that we need one another. We do. You notice how Paul ends this, by the way, and I'll end it this way too. Paul ends it this way in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Isn't that interesting? That's his last line, his last word in this kind of greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. He tells all these people. Sarah Hafner Lancaster, she writes this in her commentary about that verse. Listen to what she says. When Paul admonishes them all to greet one another with a holy kiss, he is encouraging a concrete action that would demonstrate their solidarity and equality with one another. In the ancient world, kisses were shared primarily among family members. Remember that, among family members. As an expression of familial affection and intimacy, 
Paul's command to all the named persons and households to greet one another with a holy kiss makes them circulate beyond their self-imposed barriers of distinct groups in the community and express their family relation to one another in Christ. This is all about sisters, mothers, brothers, fathers, right? She concludes, the greeting Paul has in mind reminds each small group that it does not exist by itself, but is connected to the others. That's true of us. We're a family. And like every family, we have our spats. We have our oddballs. All right? Yeah, somebody confessed to that. Gary, was that you? Yeah, <laughs> I had you in mind. I didn't want to name you, but uh, th- thanks for stepping forward. Now, I'm not going to ask you to greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't worry, Brooke. I'm not going to come over there and give you one on the cheek there. But I can't think of a better way to end this sermon than to stand up together. So let's stand up and let's do our mutual greetings now. Let's find the admonition of Paul. Let's greet one another with Christ and then we'll sing together. They will know we are Christians. Number 256. Welcome and greet one another. No kidding.